sure of nothing but her own terror. As Rahil looked up at the castle, Bryn Sarnat looked down, watching the caravan approach with a quickening of his pulse that was all too rare since his wife began locking her door at night and then, despite him, those of the serving wenches. He did not, of course, think of himself as Bryn Sarnat, though at least in their club-tongued way, the Saracens had the sense to refer to him as Prince. In fact, he had been born Reynal de Châtillon, but he preferred to think of himself as the Prince of Ultrajourdain, and forced all of his underlings to refer to him as such. The other nobles and the king simply called him Kerak, after the mighty focal point of his southern domain. Though he would have preferred for them to call him Prince as well, Kerak was acceptable when laid alongside de Châtillon, for the latter name was the only thread still connecting him to the tiny blot of a lordship in the Champagne where he had been born, and Kerak preferred to forget it. Now, in his sixty-first year, he could hardly remember Europe at all, and it was more a conscious act of forgetting than not, for Kerak had been his father's second son, with no birthright but the name and an ambition that soared well beyond any reasonable expectations. As an adolescent, he railed against his filial insignificance, never imagining that in the uneasy territories of Outremer his destiny was already forming. The challenge came in the shape of an upstart Syrian atabek called Imad al-Din Zenki, Zenki was a brutal warrior, with a deep conviction of the wrong done his people at the hands of the Frankish invaders, and a consuming ambition to take back the holy city they had conquered half a century earlier. Not a man to waste time, he began by attacking the weakest of the Franks' territories, the northern county of Edessa, which fell like a ripe peach to his mujahideen. The outraged Pope Eugenius III responded by calling for a second holy war. For de Châtillon and all the other second sons of Europe, it was a golden opportunity. In 1146 he took the cross and marched south under the banner of Louis VII of France, ostensibly to avenge Edessa, but driven mainly by the ambition to wrestle some kind of significance from the slipshod society of Outremer. Though the Holy War failed, he had acquitted himself favourably in the battles, and so he won the hand of a wealthy widow. Even then, securing his place had not been simple. Some would say that he'd orchestrated his own trouble. The raising of Cyprus had landed him in the Aleppo dungeon for sixteen years, an experience he had used to hone his hatred of all things Arabic. His wife died three years into his incarceration, and upon his release, de Châtillon married another widow, this one far wealthier than the last. Among the many assets Stéphanie de Milly brought to their marriage, none charmed de Châtillon quite so well as the dusty piece of property at the extreme south of the Frankish kingdom, known as Ultrajourdain. In the years since his marriage to Stéphanie had soured, De Châtillon, now known as Kerak, had mastered that wild county. Franks and Saracens alike quivered in his iron grip. Even the king dared not defy him. In fact, 
In all of that wide land, there was only one man who did not respect Karak's will. The would-be prince was determined to break him, and there, below his castle walls, practically within spitting distance, was his opportunity. "'You have a leery look in your eye, messire,' spoke a voice behind Kerak. "'What is it you are thinking of?' Kerak turned from the caravan to face Gérard de Rifort. The Templar Grand Master stood looking back at him calmly, white tunic fluttering in the morning breeze. His face was properly obsequious, but there was a glimmer of derision in his blue eyes, which sent a hot spike of anger rising in Kerak. Though allies by necessity, Kerak and de Riedfort bore little love for one another. Perhaps they were too much alike, for de Riedfort too had risen to his position from humble beginnings. The young...